I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Alright guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here of course with Steve. G'day guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Nick Petropolis from Wicked Wildlife. Welcome Nick. G'day, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming along. So you're from Victoria. Yep. And you've come down to SA to do some filming for your very popular YouTube channel, the Wicked Wildlife Channel. Yeah, yeah. So I I try and do videos weekly on native Australian animals and yeah, get people around the world I suppose to... To see them rather than just people in my own small little town in Victoria. It's going gangbusters. I mean, I met you about 10 years ago. We swapped some animals at the Grampians. We met halfway. Um, <laughs> it seemed like a fair deal. And uh, you're a demonst- wildlife demonstrator or mobile educator like Animals Anonymous, um, what, what we do. And you started this YouTube channel to promote the business. Yeah, yeah. I suppose I put the channel up to sort of put a few videos where I could show potential clients what I do and... Uh, I suppose people suddenly started watching that were from other countries and things, so I thought oh, I'll put another one up and another one up, and now if I don't put one up, people ask where they are. So it just, yeah, grew from there. I, I love your, your videos because you, you're standing there, it's just yourself, you're being yourself, you're holding an animal, you're not trying to be something, you know, someone else and put on a voice, you're just genuine Aussie videos. And I think people identify with that. But what I really like is that you not just have a conservation message, but you put a lot of thought into it. You're, you're not just reading from a field guide. You're not just, I read this, I'm going to say it. You, you've actually researched an argument. They're quite thought-provoking. I've learned a lot from watching your videos. Yeah, cheers. So um, I suppose I, I try and keep, uh, rather than, you know, as you said, real, reading from a field guide, make the facts short, sharp, and interesting. If somebody remembers three facts from my video and you've got a video with 20 facts but nobody remembers them, what's the point so yeah short sharp facts people remember and uh make sure they're all accurate they they have a good theme to them i mean people like you say people forget random factoids but when you've got a good theme um you know people people do take that on board don't they yeah yeah it's 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 got a flow i suppose where it makes sense as somebody's listening rather than jumping from one topic to another um so yeah i try and and make it work well for a, a viewer i suppose so as you get your name out there more you know you've made it when you start getting criticism. Have you got any criticism? <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you can't work with animals in today's climate without getting some criticism, I suppose. Um, and, yeah, especially wildlife in general. You know, there, there's mixed opinions on whether we should be keeping wildlife and how we should manage wildlife. And, uh, yeah, there's certainly some criticism come along with a few videos that I've put out. because there's so many, so many different views on that, and you know, no one's really right. Yeah, that's on, it. On any of those views, but it's good. And and people abroad love Australian wildlife, so you've hit on a good subject to get going with. Yeah, I think the the more a topic has people passionate about them, it's inevitable you're going to have different opinions, so it's going to cause some level of, of criticism. And it's not all bad criticism either, so you, you can't just turn a blind eye to it. You've got to listen to it and then pick out if it's justified or not and, and either work with it and move on, use it or move on. Mm. That's a good attitude. Yeah, I'll... I'd, I'd probably stop doing it if I, I took every single thing somebody said to heart. So, Do you read all yeah. the comments? You... Uh, I, I used to. I probably read not as many as I should. I, I read as many as I can when a video first goes up, but some of the videos have been up for two years sort of thing, and there'll be you know little comments which are, are still nice to to hear, but once they're, the video's been up for a couple of months sort of thing, I, I don't always get time to flick back and, and see every little one. But, yeah, I try and address anything with questions or... Or something like that, but 
a lot of them are just you know nice video thanks for that and, and, it, and it's great to read those but you can't spend all day doing it or I'll never get any other videos done. Well it's remarkable that you do this I mean I know what it's like being a wildlife demonstrator it's you, you know I've got a hundred animals here and that takes up so much time plus you've got to do the shows and you, know, you run the business and you know I, I, I know how busy you are and you find the time to to do these videos. Yeah it, it, it takes more time than people realize like you like you said you'd understand being uh, having a collection yourself it, it all takes time but I suppose as more people have started watching I sort of feel obliged to try and keep something coming out and um, you know I, I'd like to think it's making a difference to some people somewhere so yeah it, it's justified just got to find the time and, and keep them coming out absolutely I think you're definitely you're reaching thousands of people yeah, yeah we, we've got over a quarter of a million views all up now and it's just over 4,000 subscribers so um, which you know there, there's Channels of millions and millions of people out there, but every one of those people, it's easy to get disheartening when you only see one or two people at a day, but every one of those is a person out there who's taken, you know, a couple of minutes out of their time and is happy for their phone to buzz every time you've got something to say. So, you know, I, I couldn't do 4,200 shows a year, but I can have 4,200 people listen to what I have to say thanks to YouTube, so... So you, you started off doing the wildlife demonstration, so you go around to classrooms and, you know, kids' parties and all that kind of stuff, and uh, that's a really good place to learn to do this next-level education on, on camera. Yeah, I suppose it's the same skill set, and it's much the same facts. If you can keep a, a bunch of six-year-olds in a, a prep classroom entertained for a 60-minute session, a five-minute video shouldn't be too hard. It's just... Uh, Getting over the, the weirdness of talking to nobody in a camera, I suppose. You've got to uh, imagine the camera's actually somebody. And, and if it means you get to, to speak to all those people you wouldn't otherwise, it's, yeah, it takes some getting used to, but it's uh, starting to work. So I think I'm getting better at it. You do, you do well, mate. I mean, we were, I was watching you earlier today. You, you're doing one with the yellow footed rock wallabies here, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> and the bedong. And, and you, you remember a lot of, you got a lot of, a lot of knowledge, a good foundation of knowledge. For, for me, doing this kind of work, I don't have the best memory, but because every day I'm talking about these animals and getting asked interesting questions, so it's, these facts get embedded and you slowly build on them. I'm not one of those people that can read a book and memorise it. Um, do, you find, do you find that helps? Yeah, so like I suppose the, the flip side of a video is you can have enough knowledge to fill a 60-minute show that you would at a birthday or a school, but if you've got to cut that down to a five-minute video trying to, to pick the facts that will fit the best and then make them flow in an order. So uh, I, I try to plan it out and make it work a little bit better because otherwise, yeah, if, if you've done this for any length of time, you, you collect all these facts that you probably don't even remember where you've collected them from and they all sort of come out at one time. So, yeah, I try and, and structure it a little bit and, and pick the, the most appropriate facts that I think people are likely to remember and, and take home with them. And you can see you do put the thought in. Is there any is there any videos that you've done that have really struck a chord with people in a, in a good way or a bad way or stand right out to you? Yeah, um, I did one on, on three reasons people shouldn't stack rocks in wilderness areas. And uh, a friend shared it on Reddit. And uh, I didn't realise how cruel people on Reddit were, but it, it got a, a fair amount of attention. So it's almost a quarter of all my total views and got a... A lot of nice comments and a lot of pretty nasty comments and got shared in on rock climbing Facebook pages and websites all around the world, places I don't know about. I just 
get tagged in things and it turns out it's been shared. So yeah, that one in particular. So for people that don't know, rock stacking is when people hikers they put a rock on top of a rock and the next hiker that comes up normally on top of a hill generally. Yeah, I suppose it's it's pretty common with tourist areas where you know one person feels the need to to build a little pyramid of stones, which uh, it's easy to say, oh, I'm just one person or it's just one rock. But in the video, I sort of explain, I live in the, the Southern Grampians, which is a pretty big tourist area, and there's 4 million people a year visit there. If 4 million people stack up a couple of rocks, that's a hell of a lot of rocks that, yeah, <laughs> are moved from where they should be and something living under them to become, you know, high-rise buildings, I suppose. I've never heard about that before. Rock stacking. Yeah. yeah. Why yeah. not? Yeah, it's a thing. It, it's absolutely a thing. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> you look at all these paddocks that were once habitat, um, and they once had fallen logs and rocks and all these things which are habitat for donuts and you know frogs and lizards and snakes and you name it. Um, so those special places that are remaining, we don't want people messing with the habitat. Yeah, well, that's it. Like, it's people sort of who... Uh, so people who don't like the video sort of look back at it and go, oh, it's only one small thing. But I suppose the less habitat that's available the more important it is to keep the habitat that's there optimal because it's carrying you know an entire population so yeah habitat becomes more important as there's less of it so suddenly that the few rocks that you move or the the hollow log you take away is a real potential home for something it's not millions and millions of acres of it it's, it's limited spaces so they're important yeah i mean i, I remember getting blowback there was a uh, someone put up a how to build a pond in your backyard video and this particular pond they made might have been like a truck tyre which they'd put plastic into and so the edges were quite truncate they were like perpendicular to the ground so that they weren't tapering and I said look great idea great that you're doing it I was quite positive I said but tapering edges are better because if animals fall in there they don't drown they can they can climb out um, and you can have different successions of plants and you know that kind of stuff I got abused. I got abused because, oh, there's always one person that's a negative Nancy and that's not what I'm saying. I'm not trying to be any, just trying to, because I'd actually just not long before that was at um, Harndorf. There's a town here in uh, Adelaide Hills called Harndorf and there's a big pond and it was full of dead baby ducks. Obviously, the mum had gone in there somehow. The, somehow the babies had got in there, but they couldn't get out and they were all just dead in this pond. So, I mean, it's a real thing. But yeah, yeah people don't take kindly to... Uh, stuff on the internet sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. Wow. Did yeah. you get much uh, much flack with your um, the one you put out about the morphs um, being banned in the UK? From, yeah. Uh, my OHS, which was a great one. I, I really enjoyed that, and it was very factually correct. I thought so. Yeah, I, yeah, I tried to make job. it factual. It's a pretty emotive topic when you, mm. you're talking with colour morphs and when people in more so other countries make a living breeding some of these animals. It, it's going to raise um, some pretty strong arguments and uh, a lot of people publish videos on the same topic within the same few weeks so I tried and I try with all my videos but I tried to keep it particularly factual and not you know a, a, an attack on one side or the other just state my opinion and what I think these morphs could represent as a, a turning hobby and you know we don't want some of these animals that we're breeding to end up like cats and dogs with the, the issues that they have um, but I suppose yeah a lot of the flack that did happen it wasn't too much come from the Another YouTube channel has got, you know, a couple of million followers and those people, you know, love and enjoy his videos and they're more than willing to jump on other people's videos who criticise him, um, which is... Yeah, I didn't enough. even think it was really criticising him. It was just putting a different yeah, I, stance I tried to and actually it. giving the facts of the situation. And, yeah, it involved uh, jag carpet pythons, 
What was it? Spider ball pythons and enigma geckos. Yeah, so I I probably mentioned spider ball pythons because the initial video put out was about spider ball pythons. But um, I sort of referred to jags just because obviously living in Australia, jags are the, uh, one of those morphs that I'm able to, to work with, whereas obviously we can't keep ball pythons and uh, enigma geckos and things here. But yeah, I tried to keep it factual. But, you know, if somebody's got a, a diehard following, they're going to have people who are in all or nothing without you know, any need to read the facts elsewhere. So. And all of those animals in captivity, they're stunning animals. You know, you can keep them. They're all good. But, and I sort of understood why the IHS, International Herp Society, did that. Because I think looking from, you know, from in a hobby, we've got some people who don't like the idea of anyone keeping any animal. So if they're actually walking around one of these shows and see one of these animals doing weird things, it sort of adds to their fuel a bit. So... Yeah, I don't disagree with not having those animals. Yeah, I think in plain sight, we're we're reaching a time where we've we've got to try and justify to people to keep some of these animals. Mm. And if we don't put our best foot forwards yeah. with these hobbies, it's um we're going to cop more and more pressure over time. Mm. So, and I used to be a jag breeder, um, and they are one of the most stunning morphs of snakes out there. Um, so yeah, it's. It's a shame, but yeah, I sort of understand why they did it. But that was a great video, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Hmm. I understand your point about not giving any fuel to these people. Being a wildlife educator, I find, I believe what I do is very important, taking, you know, we've talked about it many times, showing people animals and hopefully making them appreciate the environment. But I mean, I get animal carers say to me, look, I've got a, I don't know, what's an example? Um, I've got a, a bird with one wing, but it, it can't be released, but it'd be great for education. And I don't want to display that animal because of those people that will see it and go yeah. oh look at his bird it's only got one wing like yeah. he's obviously not looking after it properly or mm. you can only show animals that look amazing because yeah. because of those people do you ever find that yeah yeah probably to an extent more so when i was working in in zoos and wildlife parks i suppose people uh dingoes were a perfect example every second person that walks past a dingo enclosure complains that they're skinny and somebody who's not interested in wildlife, they're, they're comparing a dingo to a, an overfed Labrador at home. That's their idea of a healthy animal. But I find those people generally mean well. They just they don't have the experience with wildlife to understand when it's actually an issue versus what they think could be an issue. So, I had a good example of that. I was doing a show at a science event and I've had one of my, you know, my betongs are super tame. You can pick them up like rabbits or teddy bears. And I, he was just sitting on the stage next to me and I got an email saying that animal was obviously very, very sick. That's not how a betong's supposed to respond. And no, it's not. That's how a domesticated betong responds. So yeah, it's just probably education's the key there, I guess. Yeah, that, that's it. And I suppose that's what you know my business and your business and my YouTube channel is about is is trying to educate people. The more people know, people are going to have opinions. All we can do is try and make sure they've got informed opinions. So. And, and there are always down points to some of these hobbies you know we we can keep jags there's nothing wrong with keeping a jag or a spider ball or whatever but yeah it's just those points that in certain situations you shouldn't show out so much it's yeah hmm. it's not i suppose an all or nothing type thing it's no different to you know the when this discussion about certain mutations come in people compared it to dogs hmm. and it's not to say that certain breeds of dogs shouldn't exist it's just if we're going to keep breeding any animal whether it's a bulldog or a jag having the discussion at when are we affecting the animal versus not it's, it's a good discussion to have we won't find a middle ground unless we talk about it you've done videos with amphibians reptiles birds mammals do you find any group of animals more popular than others reptiles are definitely the most popular um venomous snakes in particular get a, a fair bit of attention um but i think largely just because of the the reptile keeping community 
uh, reptile videos are more shareable, which is, I, I, I love reptiles and they're probably the easiest to do videos with, but uh, mammals is sort of uh, something I, I need to do more of or I like people to watch more because we're, we're proud of our mammals, but most Australians don't know how badly our mammals are actually doing. So um, I suppose I, I enjoy doing all the reptile stuff, but if I can get enough reptile stuff out there that you watch long enough to maybe learn about something you didn't know was in trouble, uh, you can hopefully learn without realising you're learning. Your wombat videos, that'd be pretty popular. Yeah, Boo, our, our baby wombat is yeah easily the most popular animal. So uh, I suppose most of the, the snakes and things like that, they, they pop in for a video for a topic. You know, uh, why do snakes do this or how can snakes do that? Uh, whereas Boo is probably one animal where people actually know her as an individual. And if she's not in a video for a little while, people start asking, you know, where's Boo and how's Boo doing? And is Boo getting bigger? So yeah, the wombat's definitely a, a star in her own right. So she's got her own Facebook page now. So she? Yeah, Boo the Wombat. Um, just because it got to the point where my Facebook page for my business was just Wombat posts every day. Uh, and there's a lot of other animals I'd like to talk about, so Boo got her own page. Steve likes Wombats, don't you, Steve? Well, I think it might have been mentioned before. <laughs> <laughs> On the odd show here and there. <laughs> they're my favourite. They're awesome. Yeah, they're pretty Can't hard wait. not to like. And yeah. um, But that's the thing. They're, they're so likeable, but so few people realise, like, go to a school and ask people who's heard of the Northern Heronose Wombat. Mm. There's 250 of them, one of the most endangered mammals in the world. We all like wombats, and people don't realise there's one that's, you know, was right on the brink of disappearing. So if we like an animal and we can't conserve it, what do we do with the animals we, we don't take the time to learn about? So, yeah, mm. even the liked stuff like a wombat needs more people to, to know about it and care. Yeah, it's a hard one. What do you say to people when they say, well, what can I do? I suppose a, a few things. Like, I, I talk a lot to children, and I, I always reckon the biggest thing that kids can do, and I'm pretty passionate about you know like kids are the one of the groups of people who's going to make the biggest difference because most adults don't have time to sit on google and look up obscure facts about interesting animals where we've all got lives to live but kids are the ones doing the learning so I, I go to schools and i tell kids you know if you've got to do a project on an animal instead of all of you picking koalas spend 10 minutes on the internet or, or reading a book with mum and dad and if you find an animal you don't know about chances are your classmates don't know about it you stand up and teach all your all, all your classmates and one of that class might end up growing up and making a difference. So just talking about these animals is a great way to start. You might not be the person who comes up with the Nobel award-winning prize to figure out the solution, but if you're talking about it, you're a part of that process. So yeah, talking about animals is the, the first place to start. Do you find a lot of young people listen to your show? I mean, I know a lot of people my age that listen to your YouTube channel, but do you find there's a lot of young people on board? I think so. It's a little bit hard to tell because the... The statistics on YouTube, you've got to be 13 to have an account on YouTube. So there's a lot of kids that I know watch on their parents' sort of accounts and things like that. And I, I get emails from a few schools and things who are often in remote areas or, or further away from where they can have an incursion that tell me that they play their videos like in a classroom. So the, the teachers play it to Yeah, this. yeah. So um, a few people who are doing school of the air in outback stations and stuff, particularly like the snake safety videos, uh, I've been told, yeah, enjoy those. So there's obviously a fair few kids out there watching. It's just hard to say how many, but yeah, there's enough. When you do your snake safety talks for little kids, because most of your shows are in the country areas, and you know that they're going to be alongside a lot of venomous snakes, what do you say to those kids? Yeah, so doing snake shows or taking snakes into country schools and kindergartens has always been something that I think if you're going to do responsibly, you've got to find a way to get around the, the safe snake, not safe snake thing. And rather than say this snake's okay and that one's not the best way particularly with country kids I always ask you know who's got a dog at home and they will put their hands up so well you know you can pat your dog but if you meet a strange dog at the park would you go and touch that most kids from the age of three or four know you can't pat a strange dog 
So then I can say, well, my snakes here are pets. They, they sit on the couch with me at home and they watch TV. You can pat them. But if you see a snake at school or at home, does it mean you can pat that one? So pet snake, not pet snake. I find kids at a really young age can understand that difference a lot better than this species versus that species. Uh, they can learn that stuff as they grow older. As long as we can teach them safe and, and not safe, uh, yeah. I can take mm, snakes. That's out. a great way of yeah, doing I love it. That. Yeah. Yeah, I think they pick it up well enough that I can, you know, do what I do and take snakes out to these places. <laughs> yeah, I like that. So, mate, apart from, like, the wildlife demonstrations and having the YouTube channel, what else? What, I mean, you're a family man. you got a little girl. Yeah, I've got a, a little daughter who's uh, just shy 18 months old. So, what, what's parenthood other than advanced zookeeping? <laughs> Full-time primate keeper. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's just feed them, clean them, enrich them. <laughs> yeah, uh, a three-foot tank doesn't cut it, though. So. <laughs> and, yeah, as far as hobbies go, I, I work on a farm, so I train a few sheepdogs and things in my spare time and do a bit of horse riding and follow a rodeo scene around during the summer. So, yeah, rodeos and reptiles. I, I get on a couple of bulls from time to time, so, yeah, You're I ride mad. Division 2. You are crazy. <laughs> well, I, I find venomous snake people think I'm crazy for riding bulls and bull riders think I'm crazy for handling venomous snakes, yeah. so... Um, I think in both instances they're right. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Every, everybody get, gets their rush somewhere, I suppose, yeah. so. Any serious injuries from that? Yeah, I broke my collarbone. Um, I was on a ball a couple of years ago and gate opened and, and fourth or fifth jump out, uh, come off away from my hand and my, my hand got caught in the rope and the ball basically tripped over me and with my hand stuck, got rolled right over the top of me. So there's a, a video of me quickly running out of the arena and I didn't realise what had gone on at the time, just that I couldn't take my, my vest and helmet off. Uh, and then I ended up in hospital with two operations to, to fix my collarbone. So, wow. yeah. And you still do it? Yeah. <laughs> what yeah, did I say it. just now? Wow. <laughs> Mad. <laughs> but you've never been bitten by a venomous snake? I've never had a venomous snake bite, no. The worst bite I've had in my life was a koala. So um, snakes are okay. It's cute and fluffy things you've got to worry about. Well, more people are killed by cows than they are by venomous snakes in Australia, is that Yeah, cattle are apparently the second most dangerous animal in the country. Horses are number one and uh, cattle are number two. In, in Victoria alone last year... Three stock agents were, were killed working cattle in yards. Just, you know, you're talking about an 800-kilo animal who can crush you by accident. So, mm. Mm. And um, they weren't riding it. No, they, they didn't decide <laughs> to strap themselves to it and see how they go. How long have you stayed on one for? Oh, not as long as I'd like to say. <laughs> but, um, yeah, oh, a couple of jumps out sort of thing. It, uh, the goal is to make eight seconds and then you get points after that, so... People imagine it's it's who can stay on the longest, but okay. eight seconds is a qualified ride. Those animals are bucking like that because obviously at some point in time there would have been some kind of a predator trying to eat them, and they don't want some big cat on them. They're trying to. Get no, rid I think of it's just because that pissed or... stuff that you've just sat on yeah. their back. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So so just like a racehorse, they're bred to do a certain job, but bucking is a natural behaviour. So if you watch a lion grab a wildebeest, it's going to kick its back legs out. What we do with bulls and rodeo horses is they put a flank strap basically around the, the back end of their, their belly, which people think covers their, their nuts or something like that. But it's actually, it should be loose enough you can fit a hand underneath. It's just that something moving back there that they want to kick at, which makes them kick both their legs at the same time. But usually as soon as the rider comes off, most of the bulls that are, are experienced, they know their job, the rider comes off and the bull turns around and looks for the open gate to go home and, and find his bale of hay waiting at the other end of the yard. Do you have your own balls for doing it? or No. no. <laughs> that, didn't, that did not sound right. <laughs> wow. I mean, clearly you do for doing it. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Yeah. So uh, it, it's not like horse riding where you, you put your horse in a, 
a float and rock up to an event and take him out. <laughs> um, you don't actually get to pick which bull you ride. So your okay. name goes in a draw in either Division 1 or Opens, uh, and they assign which one you're riding at, at random. So you, you get on what you get told to get on. So you get to know what bulls are really crap. Yeah, so <laughs> um, the, the Open Bulls, which uh, I, I ride Division 2, which is sort of like the, the rookies, I suppose, people who haven't won sort of prize money those bulls you know all get names and you, you people start to know them and, and know exactly what they're like um the rookie bulls come and go a little bit some cut it and go up and some don't but uh yeah you get to know a little bit who's who and you know who's likely to try and jerk a rider down or something like that <laughs> what else do you get up to you play with sharks or <laughs> no no I, um yeah, shark I, I try and stay out of the water <laughs> sensible that's sensible what about your daughter does she love living with all these animals yeah she's um I think she doesn't know any different, but she's pretty convinced she's a wombat okay. at the moment. So her and, and Boo um, are a couple of months apart in age. And Boo started out her life, she was orphaned, and she went to wildlife care in Mount Gambia. So she came to us uh, about two weeks after Isabella was born. So there's plenty of photos of one having one bottle while the other one's having another bottle. And Isabella feeding Boo bottles, and yeah, she's best friends with a wombat so where you live is there much wildlife in, in your, where you live locally you like getting out and seeing the wildlife um yes and no so like i, I live out on on a farm um so like a, a lot of farms in the southwest of victoria there's some remnant wildlife we've got red gum country so there's you know eastern greys and brush tail possums ring tail possums but uh being half an hour from the grampians um half an hour from rocklands reservoir and uh an hour from Tower Hill down south, where we're sort of in an interesting crossover. Where you don't have to go far to get to southern species, copperheads and blotched blue tongues and things, and you can go a little bit north and find lace monitors and eastern bearded dragons. So might not be much in my backyard, but there is wildlife around. Uh, the eastern barred bandicoot was rediscovered in Hamilton. So there's a, a sort of large free-range enclosure in Hamilton itself with eastern barred bandicoot chicken. Go and have a look at night time as well, so... There's enough wildlife right? experiences if you go looking. I've never seen a barred bandicoot. Yeah, they're, they're cool. They're, they're a lot smaller than I thought they would be. But yeah, they're, they're breeding pretty prolifically in there. They, I was told they, they thought they were extinct on the mainland. They rediscovered them at the tip in Hamilton living in disused car bodies. And Hillsville Sanctuary and, and Parks and Wildlife basically fenced off an area just north of Hamilton and moved the last dozen or so that they found into there. And uh, the eastern barred bandicoots that uh, are now found on Phillip Island and other fenced areas all come out of that initial colony that was started in Hamilton so that's good mm. news that's good yeah we don't we don't have any barred bandicoots in South Australia anymore we only have the southern brown what other animals do you work with made at home um I keep sort of a, a variety of reptiles just because it's easy to take you know half a dozen reptiles in the same space it takes me to move a single wombat but uh, <laughs> uh I so I work with venomous snakes because we do a lot of snake safety um venomous snake pit shows for agricultural shows and the like Quite a few pythons that people can pat and hold and handle. You know, all your sort of common lizards, keep brush-tailed possums, ring-tailed possums. A, a fair diversity. Birds is the only thing that's sort of pretty unrepresented. We've got a major Mitchell's cockatoo, and, and that's, yeah, it as far as birds go at my place at the moment. But, yeah, birds are a bit hit and miss with the public, whereas I can... The snake doesn't know the difference with me and you, whereas the bird might like you and it might not like you, so... <laughs> yep. I live with one of those. Um, <laughs> how do you get on the agricultural shows displaying snakes? Do you get mixed reviews? Yeah, agricultural shows, I suppose, are um, a tricky, especially with venomous snakes. You, you can't talk about venomous snakes in the country without being told, but I grew up in the bush, and uh, I get that. I, I used to work in remote parts of Queensland for the gas pipeline, catching and relocating animals, so 
I get what people in the bush know, but I found the only difference with city people and country people is city people know they know nothing about snakes, whereas country people don't know they know nothing about snakes, <laughs> <laughs> which isn't their fault. They know what dad taught them, who knows what grandpa taught them, who guessed when he hopped off a boat from England. So, Well, uh, that's when carpet pythons cross with taipans and get up trees. Well, I have a video on that. <laughs> yeah, can snakes hybridise? When I was in Townsville, it's, you know, everybody's saying uh, brown snakes and carpet pythons are crossing and they're creating 10-foot venomous snakes that you don't know if they're venomous or not, which becomes an excuse to kill non-venomous snakes. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's more than enough snake myths around there to make videos until the end of time. That so, would be a cool snake, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Steve's got a new breeding project. Yeah. <laughs> So someone says to you, the only good snake's a dead snake. You've heard it a million times. What, what do you say to that? Well, yeah, I suppose you have to play it by You can't take it to heart every single time. And some people you're going to be able to change and some people you can't. All you can do is present people the facts, explain, you know, talking to country people, explain that, you know, tractor rollovers and horses and cattle kill so many more people than snakes. And we spend this much money a year on rodent control, whereas we've got something that eats rodents. But yeah, if you get all those facts across and somebody's just decided they're going to make your life hard, uh, I'm not going to put myself in a mood where I, I potentially lose the risk to get to other people for that day to argue with one person who, who just wants to argue. Yeah, good point. I mean, most of them are just trying to show off to their mates too, aren't they? Yeah, that's it. You know, they're, they're, there's a lot of people who are pretty tough until you start getting venomous snakes out. Uh, and suddenly they take a couple of steps back from the pit. They're, they're happy to have their, their kids hanging over the edge and, uh, yeah... <laughs> Attitudes change when, when you take out something venomous. That's funny, isn't it? I've got four species of venomous snake on this property, and I I love it. I absolutely love it. The last thing I'd want to do is move them from here because they enrich my property. They're food for kookaburras, booble cows, barn owls. Love having them here. Do you work with any monitors? Yeah, I have a couple of monitors. I've got just got sand monitors and uh, Aki's ridgetail monitors. Oh, they're great. Yeah, they're yeah. Great. yeah, I'd love to, to add Lacey's and, and Heath monitors if I can get permission to obtain heath monitors because they're, they're endangered in my area they're endangered here too yeah it's, it's weird that you can't have you can have so many things there we're in victoria but you can't have heath monitors any idea why that is yeah well unfortunately the, the list in victoria i don't know about other states essentially i'm told was put together with all the animals that were in captivity when the permits came in and uh, if there was lots of them, they went on a basic permit because I assume they must be easy to keep. And if there wasn't many of them, they were, oh, that's got to be hard. So things like Wormer pythons are on an advanced license uh, for years and years, and they're not a, a complex snake to keep. And if there wasn't heath monitors on kept by people in Victoria at the time, they're, they're not going to be seen. Uh, they used to do a review every 10 years or something like that, but the committee of people that suggested animals to come on no longer exists so there's not likely to be any changes in the meantime that's a shame because that'd be an amazing education animal for you to have a heath monitor to show people their endangered goanna you know the big yeah that's it like predator. i'm only sort of 45 minutes from what used to be their natural habitat and there's still lace monitors out there but they're, they're few and far between but uh, a lot of people don't even know what used to be there so it'd be fantastic to be able to get them and and show people you know what we we lost and what we could maybe, you know, conserve and bring back one day, but it is what it is, and, yeah, for now we're, we're, we'll continue on to the monitors we've got. It should be re-looked at, like, you know, back in the day they were absolutely right to put Womers where they did or whatever because they it was the unknown a little bit. Um, but, yeah, as time goes on, these things need to be kept up to date, which South Australia is good for. They, they tend to keep things up to date, so... We're pretty... We can't... Hopefully wait. Victoria... No, we definitely can't. Hopefully Victoria will change what they're doing. Yeah, hopefully at some point in time. We just, I suppose, 
It, who knows? Maybe the, the reptile communities and, and marsupial keepers and stuff need to band together and you know put a foot forward and, and get a committee together again. But it, it's not happening with. Are, government are you talking agencies. about animal people working together? I know it's a it's a <laughs> it's a pipe dream. But what I've are heard, wildlife educators if not some, dreamers? <laughs> I've heard some crazy things been said. <laughs> it yeah. makes me think of that. That scene in Anchorman where all the news stations get together. That's what a meeting with that's wildlife it. people could turn into very quickly. It's like you said before, though, isn't it? When people are passionate about something, you know, it's like religion. People are passionate about the way they see. You know, they have an ownership about the animal that might be your pet, but they have an ownership in their mind about animals, and it, it is a it is a difficult one, isn't it? And I'm sure we all agree on so many fundamental issues. So it's a shame we can't take a step back to where we do agree and move forward with a positive attitude. Yeah, I think you're right. People do take an ownership of, of Australian animals to the point where, you know, recently there was that kookaburra in, in the United States somewhere and yeah. Australians started campaigning to, to bring this kookaburra home. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, like it's... In, in one way, it's great to see people want to take an ownership and, and care that much, but they also need to... They, they're probably unaware that this animal wasn't smuggled over. It's probably 10th generation captive born. And uh, if we start doing that, uh, suddenly other countries are going to ring us and want their lovebirds back and their canaries and goldfish all back. So, yeah, um, that's right. And Florida want um, the Asians to take their Burmese pythons back as well, if they could. That's <laughs> <laughs> killing the Everglades. Yeah. It's part-time city-dwelling conservationists. Um, actually, we do a lot of rural shows, and I'm always surprised that a lot of the people that live in the country, I mean, you get, you get kind of the impression when you go to TAFE and uni that, you know, the... The farmers are doing this and the farmers are doing that and they're chopping this down and they're removing that and, uh, you know, you, you, you think negative about the farmer. You go to rural shows and you meet so many people that come up to you and say, oh, we've got those at our property. or And they'll go through their phone and these are, these are old farmers showing you photos on their phone of um, this insect. I've lived in this property for 50 years and I just saw this the other day. Look at that. So you realise that these people live out here not because they want to exploit the land necessarily. A lot of them love being out in the outdoors and they love the land and they're open to you know, um, putting a bit of their property back for conservation. If they've got centre-pivot irrigators, they can put back native plants in the corners. You know, they can put windbreaks in and they not only see the financial benefits, but they do appreciate the biodiversity around them. Do you do you find that? Yeah, I um, I think it's it's really easy for people who maybe don't have any exposure to, to the agricultural sector. And I'm, I'm probably lucky in that I, I work in the agricultural sector when I'm not doing displays. So I probably maybe have an upper hand compared to some educators based in Melbourne maybe dealing with these people. But it's really easy to take this us versus them attitude, which is the worst possible thing we can do for conservation. Because like I said earlier, the, the first group I think that's going to make a difference is kids. The second big untapped resource we have for, for making a difference in conservation is farmers. And it's for a couple of reasons. Firstly, they've got the land. So, you know, if you're planting native plants and stuff like that in suburban Melbourne or Adelaide, like, you know, great, and it's good on that quarter acre. But if we can get somebody to do it on, yeah, the, the corners of their paddocks or the hillsides where they can't graze on 10,000 acres, imagine how much better we can do. But farmers, like any other person, they're, they're, they're proud. And if you tell them that they're doing the wrong thing, but you can't tell them why, you can't blame them for not wanting to listen. The other thing is, you know, in, in I think your last episode, you, you mentioned a farm that was uh, wanting to keep betongs and release things onto the property mm. and they were going to use farming to farming as well yeah mm. so sustainable farming can actually be used to, to fund this agriculture mm. uh, this sort of conservation work because uh, we can run stock and wildlife if thought out in the same place whereas you know people some people today would like us to 
to rip up all the, the grazing land and plant crops because it, it's not sustainable to be eating lamb. But uh, where I live, we, we raise sheep and uh, you can go out on most nights of the week and, and count kangaroos and wallabies and possums and koalas. If, if you stand out in a wheat crop, you might not find any of those things. So yeah, farmers, if we work with them and we you know help them and, and suggest financially viable ways to, to make a difference, are a huge potential resource for conservation. I like the way you said working alongside them too. So are you suggesting protesters shouldn't go and kidnap people's animals? Is that what... That? <laughs> Jesus, don't get us started on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it would be safe to say, you know, kidnapping an animal is... is theft isn't it yeah. people used to be hung so, so stealing people's animals is not getting them on board is no it? Okay. no that's it it doesn't it's not, write, write that down, it's not helping is it like we all have different opinions like i've got half of my staff are vegetarians or vegans they that's why you should me. get rid of them yeah that's right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so if you're listening um, but anyway, uh, yeah that's uh, it there's a huge yeah. difference with a, a dietary choice and feeling the need to to affect somebody else's yes. choices. And if I suppose if you, you take the initiative to educate yourself and make your opinion, you know, an educated one, good on you. But if if you've just been told by somebody else in cafe in Melbourne that something out there is bad. That's um, my that's my problem with it. I don't think that most of them really have that much of a clue. They're just following some teacher who's told them well, and they trust and yeah, they move forward a, with it. There's an awful lot of people in the news in the last few weeks wearing wool and beanies campaigning against wool. <laughs> do, do they realise what they're wearing and, and where these products come from? So yeah, I love it when yeah. you see it on back of cars, like you know, vegans and all of their live export stuff, which is all great and that. But they're in the worst gas guzzling, smelly piece of shit car they could possibly get, putting as many fumes out the back of the car. I'm in the car behind, choking on them. <laughs> like what? Come on, yeah, get rid of your car, get a nice car as well. <laughs> yeah, there's so many of us. We're all, whether despite what we, we all have an impact on the planet. I think. Mm. I think it comes down to population. Well, yeah. So I, I read somewhere that you know, cutting meat out of your diet can reduce your carbon emissions by you know, X amount or whatever. It's the the fourth or something best way to, to reduce emissions. Uh, having less children is number one. Mm. So if you have four children but don't eat any meat, you're actually more damaging than than I might be. So uh, it seems a bit hypocritical to, to pick and choose your way of, of cutting emissions and being good for the environment is okay and mine isn't. Yeah, that's exactly right. There are always going to be people that eat meat, so yelling at the people that eat meat is not going to change their minds. Yeah, and, and also suddenly changing this. If, if, if these industries stop tomorrow, uh, what's going to happen to this land? The, the pygmy blue tongue skink was a great example on you know, your podcast. It, it only lives today on, on sheep country because those areas haven't been ploughed. If suddenly we say, look, you can't keep sheep anymore, these might be hills, but if suddenly there's no other option to make money, I bet my left leg people will find a way to plough them hills and turn them into some income-generating means. Yeah. Uh, while they can make a little bit off them, they're happy to leave them natural, and it's the only place on earth the pygmy blue tongues live. So. Mm. Yeah, and they, and they love that thought, apart from, like you're saying, apart from when you're under some sort of pressure to do something with it, then, yeah, pygmy blue tongue would probably suffer at that point. Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? You, mm. you can say to some people, like, well, what are you actually doing to help the environment? And they go, well, I don't eat meat. Yeah, but that's not my question. <laughs> what are you actually doing to help the environment? Yeah, there's a, a huge difference with animal rights and conservation. They're, mm. they're, they're not the same thing, and they, they seem to attract very different groups of people to the extent where a lot of people who are... are 
you know, on one side of this argument are very anti-zoos and, and captivity and, and are willing to ignore all the huge benefits of, that, that zoos have, have given yep. to the natural world. Yeah, so much that we've said it so many times, so much of the money that zoos make goes right back into conservation and people don't see that. Yeah, there's, there's heaps <coughs> that happens behind the scenes. Um, I, <laughs> I did a video on, on why do zoos keep common species? Like one of the, the big arguments that anti-captivity people have and, it, you know, they, they've got their opinions, but they'll say, why do the zoos keep common species? And uh, it's fair enough until you stop and realise they probably display things like kangaroos and wallabies because we can't put a huge aviary out with mountain pygmy possums. You won't see them. So people are happy to come and pay to to feed the kangaroos and the wallabies and and the emus. And uh, behind the scenes, yeah, zoos are breeding, you know, brushstone curlews and, and things that might not make good displays, but are being funded by people coming in. And it's something you taught me many years ago. A good argument for people having pet possums you know, just common ringtail or brushtail possums. They're learning and working with a common species, but they're developing expertise. So if we have a more endangered species of possum, there are people with that expertise. That's important. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, this sort of captive keeping, I suppose, is there's huge amounts that we learn from captive keeping, uh, particularly reptiles and, and birds, the agricultural industry, you know. Like, there's so many things that wildlife parks and stuff take a standard that were probably pioneered in the private sector. Um, you, you said before, mate, that you did a bit of fauna spotting. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so... Just explain what that is to people. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, a couple of years ago, I picked up a bit of work flying up to central Queensland for 21, 28 days at a time to sort of catch and relocate animals for the gas pipeline. So, as a clearing country in the Brigalow Belt, which is, you know, obviously pretty endangered habitat, um, in order to get permission to do it, they have to have people there to... Uh, assess habitat before they clear anything and we had to be there while they were clearing and do an assessment afterwards um so yeah catching all sorts of critters and, and checking nothing fell in trenches and and that sort of stuff so caught lots of animals up there learned a, a bit about the impacts of the gas industry and so there's a heavy cost having gas to our homes well there's a heavy cost to sending gas to japanese and chinese homes yes <laughs> we don't seem to get very much of it back here. Mm. Um, most of it's sold before it comes out of the ground, unfortunately. So you saw some interesting species in the Brigalow? Yeah, a couple of interesting ones. I, I, a greater glider was probably one of the um, the big ones. Really? A, yeah, we... Uh, can, can you explain what that is to people that might not know what a greater glider is? Yeah, so uh, I suppose a lot of people are probably familiar with sugar gliders or squirrel gliders. Um, imagine that, but you know, 20 times bigger. So greater gliders... Oh, it, it'd be a metre long from nose to, to tail tip. It's the largest gliding marsupial alive. And, yeah, this poor glider was up in a hollow tree that, you know, was earmarked to come down. So we, we managed to have some pretty good operators bring it down very slowly. And we could uh, pull her out of the log and check she was all right and carry her off to a, another hollow tree, sort of 20, 30 metres off the side, where she's hopefully living out the rest of her life. Caught a lot of golden-tailed geckos, which are, are pretty exciting. Um a brigalow scaly foot, which is on the endangered species list. And, you know, thousands and thousands of more common things. So uh, under the permits, every animal is basically treated the same. We had to remove little skinks and frogs and all the common stuff. But, uh, yeah, it's still exciting to find something that's more unusual. I've never seen a greater glider. They're um, able to glide 100 metres. They yeah. sound amazing. Yeah. Yeah, they, they reckon so. So it's pretty incredible. Up there, it, it's fairly open habitat so there you can see why that would be such a useful adaptation because on the ground they they sort of look a bit dumpy and they've got a bit of a funny run so that gliding probably helps them a lot they don't have to come down to get from point a to point b and uh on the ground like any arboreal animals probably where they're most at risk so very cool 
Yeah, when you see my sugar gliders or squirrel gliders on the ground, they, they look ridiculous, like they're not at home on the ground at all. Yeah, they just look so <laughs> lost. Didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they're in the same family as ringtail possums, like gliders. gliders. Yeah, so, you know, I think people who aren't into to wildlife, they love possums and gliders, like, as separate groups, but the ringtail possum's probably closer to all the gliders than it is to, to the brushtail possum, for instance. They're, yep. they're pretty far apart, those two, but possum seems to be where we lump all the things that climb trees that don't glide. Oh, it's got to be a possum. Yep. <laughs> so. And it's the name of something that people don't like because it runs across their roof and goes in their roofs but possums are amazing yeah it includes things like the honey possum in wa the size of a mouse with his really pointy nose and unique dentition your pygmy possums mm. but those greater gliders i mean they they glide from their elbows so i reckon they must have their hands in front of their face or something but their potassium goes from their elbow to their back feet yeah the wrist wing gliders which i don't know they did they evolve independently? Because then there's the, the feather tail glider, which is in its own family again. They used to be right here where we sit, but extinct here in yeah. Adelaide. So that's three different possum families that all have yeah. gliders that are... Converge on the same same yeah. trait. It, it's got to be working. So Yeah, yeah. We were in Borneo last year. I think I, I knew you were going to say about the squirrels. every episode. I was waiting for When it. someone brings up a glider. <laughs> it was the highlight of my trip. We saw they were... What were they? They were red, giant... Red, giant flying squirrels. Flying squirrels. <laughs> we saw the black ones too, but we saw the red ones gliding through the air, and that was just remarkable, you know. Oh, yeah. um, the only glider I've ever seen in the wild was yellow belly gliders. Um, okay. The size of a rabbit related to the sugars and the squirrels, and actually got to see one glide in the wild. And the standout for me was it was like a straight line. You know, I always imagined they'd be like towards the ground, but it was like, whoa, like a bird coming into land. It was beautiful. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. We saw a glider in Northern Territory. Oh, we think we did. Yeah, we think we did see a glider, but I, I guess that doesn't count, does it really? We think we saw a glider. We should change the story to we saw we a glider. Saw, well, yeah. <laughs> we can, we can start that again. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, we were coming up from the waterhole, weren't we? Yeah. At um, Litchfield, and Litchfield. something something went glided right over your just head. Just right over my head. I saw it at the end of a branch, and it, it was dark, and it, I, it just glided. It wasn't a bird. I'm so sure it wasn't a bird. And there was certainly yeah. northern sugar gliders there because mm. it set on the interp. And then and then you found a... Um, Night tiger. Yeah. Yay, that was fun. great. Nick... Thanks so much for coming on the show, mate. And if people in Victoria want to find you and book your company, Wicked Wildlife, for an event or a show, how can they get in contact with you? Yeah, so you can find us pretty easily on Facebook. Search in Wicked Wildlife and you'll come up with us. Or wickedwildlife.com is our, our website. So, yeah, we're pretty easy to track down. And, of course, check out the Wicked Wildlife YouTube channel. I'm always learning new things, man. I love your approach. And the great thing about it, too, I just want to say it's not one-sided. You know, you look at the argument from both sides, man. That's yeah. what I really appreciate about it too. So mm. I love what you're doing. And all over here is good things about it, mate. So There's a lot of passion up. in there. It's brilliant. Yeah, I love it. Absolutely. Thank you. Mate, yeah, thanks again. And thank you for listening. Thank you.